You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. It's so good to see you guys here on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, we always pause, hopefully, uh, as individuals, as families, to uh, take time and remember those in our nation who've given their lives across the years in service of our nation and the values that we hold dear as Americans. I also hope this weekend that you will spend just a minute um, in prayer for the families of those who've lost loved ones in service of our nation, especially over the past couple of decades um, since uh, 9-11 happened and our own nation and much of the West was plunged into uh, what felt like it was going to be an ongoing war without end. And in some ways, uh, though there may be moments of pause, uh, it is just that. It is uh, a war of ideas um, and belief systems that uh, is playing itself out in the world even today. So, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, chapter 6. Uh, we're going to uh, be finishing up uh, in Luke this morning, at least for a little while. We're going to pause uh, and go through a survey of the book of Genesis through this summer, the book of Genesis through this summer. So we'll finish uh, with Luke's uh, recounting of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Uh, and then move on and kick off our series through Genesis next week. I want to just straight out start by reading the passage this morning. Um, I, I won't work as much through it word by word by word as we've done in the past. You can go online or go on the app and find uh, past series where we went uh, pretty much line by line and word by word through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the larger version of that in Matthew, um, if you're interested uh, but we're going to let God's Word speak to us nonetheless through this passage this morning. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles on the screens. You can follow along uh, in the app, beginning with verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was built well. But the one who hears my words and does not Put them into practice. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed 
and its destruction was complete. We pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you are our redeemer through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father God, I ask you this morning specifically for those of us gathered in this room, for those watching online, that as we work our way through a passage of Scripture that is often familiar to many, Lord, that your Spirit would bring it to life in our lives, in our lives individually and in our life together as a church. God, open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our minds that we might understand. God, open our hearts that we might believe and follow. I pray this in the faithful and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to tell you at the very beginning this morning that this, this is a message that has only one point. One point this morning. Messages often have three points, sometimes four points. You ought to have some points. You ought not preach. But this morning, there's simply one. And I'm going to go ahead and give it to you right at the front. And you'll hear me say it a number of times. The evidence... The evidence of saving faith is not profession, but obedience. The evidence of saving faith is not profession, but obedience. The Bible teaches a gospel of discipleship, not a gospel of conversion. The gospel is not simply a matter of the conversion of sinful people, but the renewal in time through Christ of all things, of which the sons and daughters of God, the redeemed citizens of God's kingdom, play a role in bringing about this renewal of all things by and through the power of the Holy Spirit as saved individuals. Profession is important. We're told in Romans that we're to confess Jesus Christ as Lord with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he's been raised from the dead by the will and power of the Father, and we will be saved. But it is obedience in time and not profession that gives evidence of saving faith having taken root in someone's heart. Profession is important. That's the reason we do baptism here. That's our public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you may need to be baptized. You may have never made a public profession of faith following the teaching of Scripture in obedience. And you need to do that. We're having baptism celebration again on the 11th, two weeks from today, I think. I'm not very good with math and weeks and days. Yes, Crystal says it's two weeks from today. Um, So if that's you, let us know. Pull out your connection card sometime while I'm preaching up here and and mark on the back that that you're interested in being baptized, that you want the world to know that by God's grace, you belong 
to him in Christ Jesus. And yet, the evidence of saving faith is not profession. It is not walking an aisle. It is not listening to someone else say a prayer and then you saying that prayer. The evidence of saving faith in the life of a disciple is obedience. Jesus said, he or she who loves me does what? Obeys what I command. Not perfectly. I mean, do any of you obey perfectly? No. No. Do any of you obey what your spouses tell you to do perfectly? Yes, you cowards. No. You don't. But, but we fall down, we fail with our face and our posture toward Jesus, not away from him, always toward him. And we get up and continue to walk toward him. And what Jesus teaches us here is that our relationship to his word and to his person must be one of knowledge and obedience. Knowledge leading to obedience, obedience revealing a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is that you this morning? Do you find Jesus to be the delight of your heart? One of the things that has alarmed me so much in the last 10 to 12 years in our nation. You guys have heard me uh, talk about it. If you spend any time around me at all, if you've been through any of our LM, LMI classes, you know um, I'm passionate about this, is the theological and biblical confusion that I, I think the vast majority of church members live with today. Uh, there's a remarkable article, which I, I almost hesitate to mention right now. I didn't plan on it because I'm not sure I can quote the title perfectly, uh, that came out in the Atlantic. It's sitting on my desk right now, and it's why the last 10 years have been uniquely stupid in America. And it's an exceptional article on what has happened to us and through us and to our institutions and our schools and politics and everything as a result largely of social media and what social media has done. It's a, a phenomenal article, but it describes some of this chaos and confusion of belief. But you find it all throughout segments of society if you're listening and paying attention. If you listen and you read and you watch things through a biblical lens, through a gospel-centered lens, I was watching um, a new show the other day and a, a mom was on who had lost her daughter to homicide while she was a college student. And she was holding up a picture of her daughter um, dressed as an angel. And she said this, she said, she was an angel in the Christmas play at church and now she's a real angel. But she's not a real angel. Human beings are human beings and angels are angels. And I just wondered how much church or Bible, this grieving mom actually had in her. Some of you may have seen the recent release on Hulu of the, the limited episode documentary called The Secrets of Hillsong. Many of you know about the implosion of uh, Hillsong NYC, New York City, um, the fall of the pastor there and many that were in leadership. 
But I found particularly interesting uh, some of the comments of one of the leaders in the church. So this was a, a lay leader, but she, she served faithfully from almost the very beginning, building, giving hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to the church. Some of what she said was this. Whether it's LGBTQ issues or Black Lives Matter, Christianity is always a step behind the culture. This is a leader in the church, a person who considers herself a Christian. Hillsong is planting themselves in this very progressive city, and they're saying everyone's welcome here. So, you know, you just kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. But thinking about, like, say, LGBTQ issues, I knew, that the Christ, I knew what the Christian stance was. But I didn't know what Hillsong's stance was. I mean, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing, and that main thing is Jesus and getting people into the church. But even if Hillsong does have an issue with gay people, that's just part of the deal with Christianity, and, you know, you kind of have to deal with that and just swallow it. And, and what, what you hear, there's this great disconnect between someone who believes they can be a Christian and not have all of their worldview and all of their values and all of their ethical structures and morals formed by all of God's Word. It's alarming to me. On top of that, I thought about several statements of Tim Keller's in his great apologetic work, The Reason for God. By the way, this morning... And only this morning, all of our Tim Keller books um, were selling for half price. So there's one table out there. They're all on the table, including newer copies. We sold out last week of The Reason for God. So if you want to uh, go see Sharon Bryant after this, she can, um, she can get you what you need out there. Um, and we just do that because they're helpful to you in a way of honoring Keller's legacy after his recent passing. But um, one of the things that Keller says in The Reason for God is this. To stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make sense? Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Can I just say to you this morning, church, I think that there are millions of people sitting in our churches across our nation right now who are not worshiping the true creator and redeemer God who will judge all humankind in the end, they are worshiping rather an idealized version of themselves. What about you? Are there areas in your life where you say, I simply will not submit myself to this teaching of Christianity rooted in, in Scripture? And particularly around the idea of sexuality within a biblical faith, Keller goes on to say this, the Christian sex ethic or sexual ethic was understood by the apostles to be a non-negotiable part of orthodoxy. He's absolutely right. You find teaching on the Christian sexual ethic in almost every single book in the New Testament and sometimes in lengthy sections. 
They considered it one of the core beliefs of Christianity. What Christians taught and practiced about sexuality was as much a necessary implication of the gospel and the resurrection as were care for the poor and the equality of the races. See, we live in a society right now where secular progressives, progressives love Jesus on poor and the equality of the races, but they reject Jesus on sexuality. You don't get to do that. And there are a lot of so-called conservative Christians who love Jesus on sexual ethics. They're not even sure you should have sex when you're married. Unless it's by accident. But they completely disregard in life and in doctrine Jesus' teaching about the poor and the equality of the races. Keller goes on and says, this makes it possible to argue, as many try to do, that what the Bible says about caring for the poor is right, but what it says about sex is outmoded and should be discarded. The evidence of saving faith, church, is not profession. It's not getting soaked in the baptistry. It's obedience. Imperfect, but passionate, pursuing obedience to the person and work and word of Christ Jesus. When you look at verses 43 through 45, Jesus is simply describing something that is true. It is simply an agricultural, natural truth of God's created order. He says, no true, uh, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Now, those of you that garden, or maybe, maybe some of you have fruit trees in here, you know this is true. You know that when it comes harvest time, if your fruit is sick, you know that your tree or your plant has an issue. And then he goes on kind of comically and says, people don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. You're not going to get strawberries off of cactus. That's not the way it works. You're not going to pull pineapple out of weeds. It's not the way the laws that God set in motion work. And what Jesus is saying here is you can fake it only so long. Because what is true is always true, and it will come out. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Listen to this language, because Jesus is painting a picture of a man or a woman who has spent time paying the price of growth and formation. It's stored up. I don't know how often you stored things. Growing up, we often had to haul hay. I hated it. It's one of my least favorite things to do. And I would always get stung by some flying, stinging thing. In Texas, at least, when we were hauling hay, a wasp, a yellow jacket, they loved to sting me, right? But the, the way you would haul hay, if you had a big field, you'd have these rows of, of the, the small, regular-sized bales, and someone would drive up and down the rows, usually dad, because he'd earned that ride at his age, and then the sons, of which I was a part, would follow, throwing bales of hay up into the trailer while one or two other brothers were stacking, or hands, in the trailer until it was all stored up. And then you'd take it to a barn and you would store it in the barn. Storing takes time and effort. You with me? Some of you are canners. Some of you don't know what that means, and that's fine. You can check out for about 10 seconds. 
Canning takes time and effort, doesn't it? It takes time and effort to store up food that is not easily lost. But Jesus says, just as the good, so is the evil. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And then this verse, this verse that just ran over me like a cargo train this week. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. But when you speak a lot, this is a dangerous statement from Jesus. And one that crushed me to the ground this week. Back into his word, back into repentance and prayer, back into journaling. He lets us know that to, to bear good fruit, for you and I to bear good fruit, to have stored up things in us that produce good fruit, means you and I committing to God's word in a way that the, uh, the book of Ephesians says causes us to be washed by the water of the word. That the water of God's word is washing back and forth through the fabric of our lives, lifting out the impurities. You don't have to see them all lifted out. It's just what God's word does. Just like when you put clothes in a washing machine and, and you wash it, you begin to see all the mess there in the water after, but you don't see the water passing through the actual fabric, lifting out this little particle and that little particle. You just notice after time that the fabric's becoming cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. This is what God's word does in our lives. It's why it is the standard for life, not the values and whims of culture or politics or anything else. It is a phenomenal book that, that just came out a number of months ago, Biblical Critical Theory. Biblical Critical Theory. Australian scholar Christopher Watkin makes the case and makes the case brilliantly that it is the storyline and doctrine of the Bible that sifts and evaluates and critiques and judges culture, not culture that sifts and evaluates and judges and critiques the Bible. Because that's what critical theory does. Critical theory is a theory built around something, and that something is the lens through which a culture, beliefs, and values are viewed and sifted so that you see things you didn't see before. His Byline or short for the book is how the Bible's unfolding story makes sense of modern life and culture. That's why uh, one of the first Elementary Institute classes we hope you take is gospel story. So you're introduced in at least a foundational way upon which you can build to the, the full storyline of Scripture. Tim Keller wrote the foreword for the book. And in the foreword, he says this, It is not enough for Christians to explain the Bible to the culture or cultures in which we live. That's often, if we do anything, all that we want to do, right? We want to say, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and here's why we think the Bible says that. He says, we must also explain the culture in which we live within the framework and categories of the Bible, revealing how the whole of the Bible sheds light on the whole of life. See, it's not just about the salvation and the redemption of individuals. It's about all of God's creation that Romans 8 says is groaning under the weight of sin, our sin, 
Man, why do you think it is you get close to wild animals? They either scream and run or they attack you. We cause the problems they live with all day. They're like, ah, the fallen ones. I don't really know this. This is just a hypothesis on my part. But they're glorifying God in a way you and I never can just by being what they were created to be. And then here we come, the creation wreckers. And they're like, ah, ah, you know? I don't know where that came from. Um, what Christopher Watkin is getting at in biblical critical theory and the, the, the truth that Jesus is simply commenting on here in verses 43 through 45 is beautifully summed up in C.S. Lewis's famous statement from his work, is Theology Poetry, where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It is through the redemptive glory of the Son of God that you and I should be able to see everything else clearly. All the domains of life that exists for the glory of God and good of his people and his creation. Jesus goes on. Jesus goes on. Verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me authority, authority, boss, boss, captain, captain, king, king, master, master, and do not do what I say? And then he says, for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, so we, we learn, we grow in knowledge, and that knowledge drives us to grow in grace-driven practice as we simply seek to do without regard to how we feel about it what the Word of God teaches us to do. We talked last week about how you often have to forgive your way into feeling. Rarely can you feel your way into forgiving, especially if you're forgiving as Scripture teaches, because Scripture teaches us that we simply forgive. We don't hold on. We don't let it fester. We don't lay awake at night thinking, man, I wish just once I could or I would. I think our lights are going out. You guys are getting remotely darker all over the room. This is really interesting from my vantage point, but uh, those in the dark, I wonder. Um, I don't know where I was, but here's my word to put them into practice. I will show you what they're like. So he says, let me, get, let me give you a word picture, and let me give you a picture in our culture that everyone can understand, Jesus says. They're like a man building a house who, who digs deep, and he lays the foundation on the rock. So when the storms come, the house is fine. The house is fine. Most of you are, are familiar enough with Israel and the Middle East, at least generally, as a geographic location to understand how arid and dry and desertous it is. It's a, it's a geographical place filled with wadis, W-A-D-I. We would call them uh, arroyos in the western U.S., just dry creek beds, dry creek beds that, that except for times of significant rain, just stay dry. And during times of significant rain, though, man, do they become powerful. If you've ever lived in the West, in Arizona or Southern California where we lived uh, for a time, you know the power um, of, of those torrential rains when they come to do powerful destruction. I remember and was talking with Sharon 
this last week about when we lived in Southern California, most of the rain that we would get uh, in the North San Diego area, we would get uh, in the month of February. You might get a little here, a little there, but most of it came in February. And I remember Cade, who had lived most of his life uh, in Southern California, we're standing in the garage one day and the door's up and it's a little bit cloudy that day. They're, they're coming in kind of heavy, thick. It looks like rain clouds. And Cade might have been three and a half, maybe four. He's standing beside me and it thundered and he stepped back. He said, whoa, what's that noise? Because he'd never heard thunder before. He'd never heard thunder. He didn't grow up here. He didn't grow up in Texas. Thunder was new to him. I did my undergraduate, as did Sharon, uh, at a Baptist university in Abilene, Texas, in West Texas. Abilene, back when it was built, some more arid climate, doesn't get a lot of rain. So as the city uh, was built decades and decades and decades ago as a cow town, they, they never installed an underground drainage system in the city. So when we were college students there and it rained, when the, when the sky would build up its pressure and the Lord would release it and it would pour, the streets would flood because all the water had to run off the surface. Um, that was quite uh, fantastic and exciting to me, especially as a young college student, to see uh, where all I could get while the streets were flooded. You know, you don't have any sense at that age. And so um, it was just fun to try. But I remember, I remember one day, we had several minor earthquakes when we lived in Southern California. I remember one specifically, we had the family in, the, in a, our Sienna Toyota minivan, urban assault vehicle, so I like to think about it. Um, we'd come down the ridge line from where our subdivision house was, stopped at a stoplight at the bottom, and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you feel the van kind of going like this. And you look up, and the, the stoplights are doing this. You look around, you're like, oh, yes, it's here, right? Um... We got back to the house later, and as we walked in and kind of surveyed the house, there wasn't any major damage, but all the pictures were wonky all over the walls. It all stood this way, turned that way. A few of them had fallen. A few small things had fallen. But you know what everybody wants to know, whether it's commercial or residential, after an earthquake about your structure? How is the what? Foundation. Because if the foundation is broken, the building's broken. How is the foundation. And this is what Jesus is getting at. And foundations are often used to describe the Christian life and the church. Psalm 11.3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you'll often hear sometimes people talk about Jesus as the foundation of the church. And that's not horribly wrong, but it's, it's actually not quite how the Bible describes uh, our life together as a church building. And I, I want us to know that this morning as Jesus is using this foundational language here. We're not told really that Jesus is the foundation of the church, but rather that no foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, can be laid except that which is laid in and through Jesus Christ. So whatever foundation is laid among God's people in our lives individually, in our life as a church, is laid in and through Jesus Christ. Christ. And the biblical image of Jesus is not that he's the foundation, right? He's, he is that upon which the foundation is laid, but he rather is what? He is the chief cornerstone. He's the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22 and Matthew 21 says. So what is the foundation of the church? If someone met you on the street and asked you, what is the foundation of the church? and thereby the foundation 
upon which you're building your life in Christ. Well, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, maybe I'll read through 22. Yeah, I'll read through 22. Gives us a clear picture of this. Listen. And these may not all be up on the screen, but they're all in the app. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, no longer estranged from God, relationally, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I love the corporate nature of that. He doesn't just say individually redeemed. He says, we are now fellow citizens with God's people. This is why your faith is not just about you. What we do in worship is not just about what you prefer, what you like or dislike, what you wish was done this way or that way, what you wish was sung or wasn't. It's about us being built up together, living sacrificially. That's why I tried, I think it fell flat on some, but I tried to commend some of you last week to commend uh, Pam, to commend Tony. Who else did I commend? Lynn. My attempt was to commend them for choosing sacrificial faithfulness. In other words, I'm going to stay and engaged and be an active participating member of my church, though I'm sacrificing some of what I'd rather have, choosing that over leaving for preferred preference. Because this is the life God's called us to. But back to the business of what the church and our lives are built on. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, that is Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, together, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The foundation Jesus is referring to here that we dig deeply and build our lives upon is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is the foundation of God's word. So how does that work? Let me give you just a couple of pictures of how this business of foundation works in scripture. If you go back to Acts 2, the birth of the New Testament church, the early church, right after this, this great inbringing by God's power of new believers, verse 42 of Acts 2 says, they then devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, where doctrine is the word there, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First and foremost, Every Lord's Day and throughout the week in homes as you explore Acts and the early church, they were first and foremost devoted to the teaching, the doctrine, the instruction of the apostles. Part of the reason we're, we're pushing for you, for all of you being, being led by our members, if you're covenant members, it means something here. That's part of the reason that the first commitment you make now when you come into membership is that you will gather when we gather faithfully, both large and small. So we're encouraging you guys to sign up for home groups. It's just eight weeks. We know most of you won't be able to make all those weeks. We know some of you, husband can come, but wife can't, or wife can, but husband can't. 
But we're encouraging you, go online, go on your app and sign up for home groups this summer. Because part of what the believers in Acts were doing, laying an example for us to follow, was not just gathering on the Lord's Day in larger context in the courtyards of homes. They certainly did. But they were gathering day in and day out, week in and week out, together in smaller groups, discussing and learning the apostles' teaching. So significant. It's why in Romans 21, or Romans, why in, in John's Revelation, Revelation 21, when you see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, and the language is so glorious. The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. If you go on down and look at verse 14, it says that this wall of the new city of Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 foundations upon which the wall of the new Jerusalem is built and will be built is on the names, the teaching, the message of God given through the faithful witness of the apostles. That's why the early church in Acts came together to be instructed in the doctrine of the apostles. The evidence of saving faith, church, is not profession. It's obedience. It's not profession. It's obedience. Profession should kick off a lifelong pursuit of Jesus that bears fruit, revealing obedience. And you and I cannot obey and live out that which we do not know. And when we make statements that may warm our heart and sound colloquially interesting, like she once played an angel and now she is a real angel, they may sound nice, but they're terrible theology. They are biblically untrue. It's a heretical statement. It's why the early church gathered around the apostles' teaching. It's why we're here this morning to be instructed by the apostolic word. Because if we're going to live as faithful disciples of Jesus, we're going to have to be rooted in the apostles' instruction, in the teaching of the prophets and the apostles, which is a summary statement about all of the word of God. And when we dig down deeply into the word of God, we are digging down deeply and laying our foundations upon the rock as Jesus is teaching us. And if you don't have your house built on the rock, Jesus says that when the storm comes, not if, when the storm comes, your com destruction will be complete. Your destruction will be complete. Let me ask you this morning, what have, what have you built your life on? All of us have built our life on something. If we were honest, by God's grace, we might say that we've built our, our life on our families. We might say that we've built our life on a sort of moral version of Christianity that paints myself as the ultimate one who's faithful rather than God. 
There's so many things you can build your life on. Let me ask you this. What is your use of time? Your time that God's given you, the energy that God's given you, the money that God's given you, the particular gifting and talents that God's given you. What does your use of these things reveal to you, to the world, about what you're building your life on? I mean, part of the reason most of you, maybe all of you, I'm sure not all of you, there's going to be at least some email addresses we don't have, but hopefully all of you, but surely most of you, got an email from uh, Julie Turner this past week letting you know uh, that we have a couple, Julie and Beth Johnson, that will be traveling to South Africa in a few weeks to get on the ground there with Orchard Africa and spend a week working with them, serving with them, both participating in and observing what God is doing in and through them and the local churches in South Africa. We want and need our church as a whole to be a part of that, praying for them, and you'll hear more about that later in a very specific way where you're praying for, for one or the other of them, specifically daily. You've got an itinerary, knowing what they're going to be doing, who they'll be working with, but also by bringing things that they desperately need, right? There, there are ways in which the world, uh, the church in the developing world is teaching us phenomenal things right now. And there are also ways in which we have tremendous resources that they desperately need. So I really encourage you, go back to that email. I don't, we don't have anything on the screen right now, but there's a, a QR code you guys can scan. Uh, there's boxes. Yes. Um, there's boxes out there. I would encourage you, look it up. Go to your email. Scan the QR code. Um, those of you with phones that know how to do it are doing that now. Um, bring what we need. They're going to take all that stuff with them. It will look like a human train. I guess it'll just look like an engine and a caboose with a bunch of bags in between. I don't, I'm going to, I've got to stop now. Uh, but anyway, th- why are we doing that? Just because somebody wants to spend an entire day on a flight, come back utterly exhausted and go right back to work? No, we're doing that because we're taught uh, empirically by Jesus teaching and his life that we're to go. We're to go to Hiram. And we're to go to the ends of the earth from wherever we are. We are the ends of the earth from where Jesus was saying that. And the gospel came here. It's obedience. It's hard to finish on a passage like this without recalling Matthew's deeply unsettling version as he recorded Jesus' words. Chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 21, he says, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who, who has my name on their lips, who professes me, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then it looks confusing because he says in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You may have been saying, Lord, Lord, you may have known about me. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is the picture of the ultimate storm that's coming for all of us. Some of you might live charmed lives, right? You might. You might not face any significant storms in your marriage 
or with your kids or with your friends or with your vocation, but every single one of us in here will face what the Bible describes as the great storm of God's judgment. Where the veil is pulled back and every private and personal deed, thought, and word is revealed. And Jesus says, Jesus says on that day, many will be unprepared. Many who believe they were prepared. It's why he said in verses 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the gate that leads, road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. Part of what we see here is that these false disciples were relying on their actions. When the obedience that Jesus is talking about here to his father, doing the will of his father is rooted in acts of confession and repentance and mercy and grace and instruction of the word that reveals saving faith. That's why the apostle Paul gives us this terrific word of instruction in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Don't miss this. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul tells an extremely gifted church that was also quite messy. He says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, these are people in the church he's writing to. These are people who've been baptized. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Late J.I. Packer said, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. The evidence of saving faith, church, is not profession, but obedience. The Bible teaches a gospel of discipleship, not a gospel of conversion. The evidence, the fruit of true conversion is a committed life of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Not a perfect life of discipleship to Jesus Christ, but a committed life of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've got questions this morning. If you do, I'd love to talk to you. After church or any time through the week, you can email me. You can write on a connection card, hey, please have Matt call me or email me. Examine your faith. Your life and your eternity depends on it. Let's pray. As I pray, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. And when I finish, we'll receive offering this morning. You can drop in your giving envelopes and connection cards. Father, I pray in this moment that we would search our hearts. 
Lord, that we would open our hearts to you, that you might search them by your Spirit. God, reveal any untrue way, any impure way, any crooked way in us. God, bring it clearly and plainly to our minds that we can confess our sin and find, as 1 John 1, 9 says, you to be faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, you are so good. You are so good. Father, now as many prepare to give and many more have given throughout this week online, by text, God, bearing some of the fruit, the evidence in obedience of their profession having been true, of their faith being indeed a saving faith. I ask that you'd bless them. God, honor them. Stretch and multiply all that's given. May every single dollar be used according to your will for your glory, for the advance of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.